0: No mai hire mai kite fara nei, hire Mai kirunga ite kopapa otera, e nga manu finua o ototahi uh, ngai tuahuriri, oha ia koto, e nga manu hiri hoki e toku uh, hoa, nor is Jean Mackay, no mai hire mai kia koto katoa. Uh, my name is Philip Armstrong. It's lovely to see you all here. The title of this event is Talking Animals. Um, Laura, Jean and I are two of the talking animals in question. We'll (laughs) be talking uh, about animals. We'll be talking about each other's work. Laura Jean is uh, a visitor to Tahi. I live here. So in that sense, I'm the host and Laura Jean is the guest. Um, But in another sense, we're each other's hosts and guests, we're going to be um, asking each other questions about each other's work. And we're going to um, start that reciprocal process by introducing each other. (laughs) Um, So I'll start by introducing Laura-Jean Mackay. Uh, Laura-Jean comes from Australia, but she comes to us most recently now from um, Palmerston North, where she lives. Um, So in that sense, Laura is an international visitor to the festival, and those are quite thin on the ground uh, this year, so we're lucky to have her uh, for that reason as well. She completed a PhD in creative writing at Melbourne University and then to her country's loss and to New Zealand's enormous benefit, uh, she took up this lectureship in creative writing at, um, at Massey University, where she is now. This year's been an astonishing year for Laura. Um, She's published a couple of really, I mean, amongst other things, no doubt, she's published, I've seen recently, a couple of wonderful essays, one in The Guardian about coronavirus and animals, one in the spin-off, and perhaps elsewhere, a very, very moving essay about the death of her grandmother. Um, But she has also published The Animals in That Country, Uh, Came out six months ago. It's been described by reviewers as a combination of animal novel, a pandemic thriller, and a road trip narrative mashed together. It's been described, quote-unquote, as a game-changing and life-changing book, as wise and obscene in equal measure, and as a triumph. Its effect on readers has been compared to being picked up and dumped by a wave and left gulping for air, and I... Having just reread it, I can attest that all those are very accurate assessments. Um, So, welcome, Laura Jean. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Uh, so incredible for me to be on the stage with Philip Armstrong um, Philip is just the most incredible figure in animal studies the work that he does uh, with with Annie Potts for the human uh, the Center for Human animal studies um, here in Christchurch is is just phenomenal and I've been in awe of Philip for quite some time and was so astounded when he was the examiner for my thesis. Um, anyone who has studied, uh, maybe done some higher degree research, a PhD examiner um, is sort of like a god. Uh, <laughs> he said very, very kind and tough things. And I didn't actually imagine that we'd be we'd be here together. But one of the works that um, Philip really um, produced, that really influenced me, was um, what animals mean in the fiction of modernity. Um, A few years ago, when you said you were looking at talking animals, or you were writing a book about talking animals, people would laugh. It was a very amusing thing to do. So to have uh, people like Philip working in this space um, and saying, yeah, being with animals is funny. It is Fun, but also it's, it's, it can be a serious topic of inquiry. That was really encouraging for me. So Philip um, lives in Littleton, which I've heard is a- absolutely stunning, yes. um, teaches, teaches literature, writing and human animal studies at the University of Canterbury. In 2011, he won the Landfall Essay Prize for his essay On Tenuous Grounds, and that was an account of the Canterbury earthquakes. And his previous books include Sheep, a New Zealand book of beasts, um, and now this extraordinary collection, Sinking Lessons, uh, which is not only a beautiful looking book, but the poems in here, as I will describe, really, really take you under to somewhere else. So, welcome, Philip. It's so nice to be here. With you. Thank you.
0: I'll go
1: first. Okay. <laughs>
0: As Laura mentioned, um, I've been uh, thinking and writing and teaching about the way in which people represent animals in literature um, in novels and poetry and so on for a long time, 15 years maybe, maybe even longer than that. Um, And I've read lots and lots of novels which are about trying to imagine what animals might say if they could talk, if we could understand them. And I've never read one remotely like this. The other thing, uh, just for context, is that uh, living in Littleton, every morning I walk my dog up the hill behind our house. And I, as anybody who walks a dog, part of the delight is trying to imagine what it's like for her, you know, what she's smelling, what she's interested in, who she's going to try and bite. She's that kind of dog, (laughs) I'm afraid, and so on. But uh, after I read this novel, I experienced my walks with her completely differently. Um, And I found myself quite unsettled. I found myself thinking, um, well, what is she experiencing? You know, I take delight in the idea that she is taking delight in her walk. But what about her fears? What about her frustrations as a pet animal? What about her anger uh, towards me? And it, it was very destabilising and quite a different kind of walk. And it's great sense of sort of opening up um, to an appreciation for animals that was as full of Alarm, and the possibility for dismay, as it was also for for delight. So, uh, that's one aspect of my response to your book, and I have some more specific questions about it. But I wonder if you have anything to say about that.
1: I, I feel the same um, in that reaction to other books. Um, I, I'm thinking specifically of Eva Hornung's Dog Boy. Mm. Not sure if anyone's read that. That was one of those amazing books, book. amazing book, where. I have never looked at a dog the same way again after after reading that book. There has never been a canine, <laughs> um, not because the animals speak in the in that book so much um, through their mouths or or that there are words, but just sinking into that canine world uh, is just such a powerful experience. And I guess that's what literature can or mm. hopefully do. But it's no easy task is it to to try to write a novel uh where animals might communicate I felt that I needed to write two books so I was writing this gritty realist book about a woman who um who loves a drink and a and a smoke and and uh and has a very active love life, and she doesn't really like people, but she likes animals, and she's going through a really crappy divorce. That's sort of quite a realist thing. And then I had to write this novel that was almost speculative, where suddenly there's a strange new flu (laughs) um, pandemic going through the world, and one of the outcomes is that people can finally understand what other animals are saying. And so to bring these two novels together and to make it work was quite... The undertaking, uh, but what you said—that's that's all I wanted people to get out of the novel. Really, I want people to just um, take a step back and look at the animals in their life. Uh, even if you don't have a companion, maybe it's the birds in the street. Maybe maybe we're wearing one. We're or sitting on some. Um, you know, what are the animals in our lives, and and what is our actual relationship with them, mm. um, and what does that mean, and what can we do about that? Mm. Because we're taught in literature not to not to write message novels. We're not supposed to, um, you know, come out with this big moral. Mm. That's a very old-fashioned thing to do.
0: Um, it's very much not a message... It doesn't come across as a message novel. It's, it's, a, it's a real adventure. It's a, amazingly engaging. Mm. Um, but the most astonishing bit of all to me is when the protagonist, having caught this flu, um, which does something to your cognitive abilities and enables you to understand animals... And, you know, that's a hard sell for a reader, Okay, I mean, we can think of animals talking if we're reading Richard Adams or if we're reading a kid's book. And there are people like, you know, Barbara Gowdy and and others who have narrated novels, serious novels, adult novels, um, from the point of view of animals as if animals think and speak like us. But Laura Jean doesn't do that. She knows and we know that animals don't and can't and will never speak like us. So what the, what the virus in the novel does is it enables you to be more sensitive to the chemicals and the body language and the pheromones and the vocalisations and the gestures and the smell of animals' backsides um, and the smell of their crap and the urine marks that they send. And these things start to come together in the most extraordinary way And the protagonist gradually, in a kind of aghast fashion, starts to realise what the animal's saying, and it's often not very pretty. Um, And the way that's done is, I mean, it's not just astonishing in terms of human-animal relations and rethinking those, but it's very astonishing in literary terms. So it's, as an experiment, I mean, the novel, I suppose, develops, um, you know, as a way of concentrating focus on the human experience
1: this has actually made me reflect on certain encounters that I've had particularly in New Zealand uh, with other animals I love the the power of of the sea life here that's something that's quite different to Australia Um, you just can't you know you sort of walking around the, the nature, and there's a lot of birds, and that's very lovely, but I'm sort of looking around for the... Where's the kangaroo and the echidna? And then you get to the ocean, and there's just seals and penguins and big birds and, and, and fish and, uh, and sea creatures, and that's such an exciting experience. And I was at the Coromandel one summer uh, going for a walk, and there's a place called Stingray Bay, and I thought, oh, that's sweet. It's because it's shaped like a stingray, the bay, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> What are no- and nobody's swimming here, I'll, I'll um, have a go. So I got in there, I didn't have my glasses on, and I could see these shapes in the water. I Oh, there's some big rocks around here, I better be careful, don't bump your knees on them. Um, and of course the shapes were moving around, and I, I got to this certain bit, and I, I saw um, what looked like a big slab of granite. I swam up to it, I like a bit of granite. And um, there was an eye there, this intelligent, well, I don't know, well, a, a curious, deep, Curiosity in this eye that was just regarding me, um, and I realised I'd entered the territory of this great creature, a stingray, and uh, we just had this moment together. And it reminded me of um, of Val Plumwood. I'm not sure if people have read her incredible essay, "Being Prey," uh, amazing ecofeminist philosopher who was in the Northern Territory, very experienced um, bushwoman. Went, for, hopped in a canoe, um, went through and got attacked by a crocodile and, and dragged down. And she remembers holding onto a branch, being dragged by this crocodile and looking back and seeing this eye, the same eye, just mm. regarding her. Mm. Um, and it was just this connection, moment of connection. Mm. And when I read sinking lessons, I just had this uncanny feeling of this very... Uh, the eye of another who I share a planet with and that is watching me, but it is watching me in a way that I, I don't understand. I don't understand who they are, um, but I'm there with them. And I'm particularly, um, you know, thinking of, of the piece Ill um, Dreams, and I'll talk a bit more about that later. But I guess I'm wondering where does, where does this distinct sense of sinking into another world, one that is familiar but not totally our own, where does sinking lessons come from? How
0: do you arrive at this point? I think there is something about New Zealand and the sea uh, and about the relationship between the sea and the land. I was lucky enough to grow up in a house right um, on the water um, and there was a seawall outside and uh, when the tide was high, the waves bashed up and threw themselves right over our house and so I would go to sleep listening to the sea mm-hmm. <laughs> falling on the roof and no doubt casting up startled fish and and, and starfish and uh, crabs and all sorts of things. And so I think, um, yeah, for, for me that, that sense of the non-human world, um, its elements, its weather, the sea... Animals, plants, being in us, in the same, you know, as as well as our being, and them, being in our imaginations, and being in our bodies, and being in our spirits, is, is very much uh, part of part of being here in these islands. Um, and and the and the other thing I suppose that always um, motivates me when I'm reading or when I'm writing is that just the idea of defamiliarization. You know, I think just to get a bit academic for a moment. Uh, uh, I think it was Viktor Shlovsky, um, the Russian formalist critic, who he b- produced this wonderful Russian word, which I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce, but it's often translated as defamiliarization. And the idea that the job of, art, of the arts, the job of literature, is to make us see things that we think we know, that we think we're familiar with, to make us see them and experience them in an alien way, in an unfamiliar way, which of course is is again, you know, an opportunity for delight, but it's also an opportunity for horror and dismay and alarm and, um, and, you know, rethinking.
1: Well, what I find is that whether people think that writing about animals is, is silly or not, everybody has an animal story. Yep. Whether you like animals or not, yep. there is not, there's no human on the planet no. who d- hasn't had an animal encounter and doesn't have a favourite animal story. Yep. And that's a really lovely way into talking about this world and mm. talking about these sorts of subjects. Mm. Mm.
0: Mm. Absolutely.
1: Mm.
0: Absolutely. Um
1: Can we do a little reading or? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Because
0: then I've got a question for you about techniques. So I think oh, be a okay. good time to ask that.
1: All right. Um, I'm going to. So. There's a thing called zoo flu in this novel. The protagonist is Jean. She's a, um, a human. And uh, everybody's caught, caught zoo flu, and, and Jean has finally caught it as well. And it means that she can communicate with other animals. But she hasn't yet had the chance to talk to her favourite animal, which is a dingo called Sue. So this is uh, Jean's first encounter with a dingo called Sue. Just as I skirt around a mossy stump, a voice calls to me like a childhood song. Queen. It rips through my itchy earplugs. I know it. Not Kimberly, my granddaughter, or Lee, or my son, or the little things in the tree, but someone so familiar that I skip, God help me, and start towards it. A whiff of Queen. Queen. I slowly tug the flowers out of my ears and squint through the trees. A fly to my left, the stench of the forest, private as an armpit, sweat pooling cold between my boobs. My special someone calls again. Queen is here. Ange? Angela won't be calling anyone Queen. It's someone else in the bush. I see Caramel, meet with a face so familiar it could be mine takes a moment for me to understand it's not human. Every thing. Sue? I stumble back into a pandanus tree. We're both breathing hard. Can you hear me, Sue? Copy that, Queen, yesterday. She's right there, escaped from her enclosure, sitting politely in a clearing with one of our rainbow lorikeets in her mouth their metal ID band around the bird's leg, Kermit or Miss Piggy. I could never tell which from which. Sue's face is stiff with what I guess is blood. She isn't talking through her mouth or her mind, but like the mice and the things in the trees, through her whole damn body, upright and narrow, very proper in her way. Her voice isn't made of words either. She's speaking in odours, echoes, noises with random meanings popping out of them, a twitching rear paw, Creaking sounds of welcome in her throat that don't say what they should say. No hello or hi, no formal greeting. It's, my front end takes the food quality. Muzzle for the queen yesterday. You said queen again, I say. She steps forward. Queen, open me up. Jesus, Sue. What? What? The noise its face makes. (laughs) I crouch, really take a look at her. I've spent the last seven or so years staring at Sue, but I never saw her white chest talk two ways. One for the open road, the time of the whole world, the wild dogs out there. The other way for inside the cage, the safety of locked doors, a hand on her back. My, a hand on my back. Her body crackles around the parrot. It's all mine, Queen's. Everything in me says this is bad, an edgy dingo is a dangerous one. Look, I'm not after your bird, you can moor it. Why don't we go back to your enclosure to do that? She bursts forward, body dancing. You'd think it'd be easier now we can talk. Back to your yard, good dog. But her twitchy paw, the rumbles in her throat, her smooth pelt and her smart as whip ears all together say, gasping, over the lock, I'm Minji. It'll call me, and I'd like to get a drink of it. Doesn't make a lick of sense. <laughs> <Okay. clears throat>
0: so you can see what I mean. It's, it's fantastic. We didn't discuss which bits we were going to read. Um, and so it's fantastic that you read that, because I, I found a quotation from a review of the novel of rhapsodic review of the novel by Justine Jordan in, in The Guardian, and she says, and I think this is spot on, she says Mackay sets out the animal's communications in bold font as short nomic poems that hover somewhere between concrete poetry and a bad translation app. <laughs> um, so, th- so this is uh, Sue talking. The one made of bones and line break, biscuits The open parenthesis, yesterday, close parenthesis, spray, Line break. I'm here for the line break queen, is Sue's message to Jean when they come to face to face. But as you go through the novel, you start to understand it. Um, and whether that's just because you get used to it, or through, and of course, through extremely skillful writing, it makes it more comprehensible. And so Sue becomes more and more real to you as a very multi dimensional character, Sue the dingo. So they go on a road trip because they're searching for um, Jean's granddaughter, who, for reasons best known to herself, Sue refers to as tomorrow. Jean is yesterday. Um, And so they go searching for Kimberly. and they go on a road trip, and they have all sorts of extraordinary adventures. Um, And the relationship between them changes as the novel goes on. Um, And in particular, towards the end, Sue becomes very dominant um, and very much in charge. Um, And so I wondered if you... Mm. If you would like to say anything about the, the, yeah. that relationship, which is so key to the novel
1: yeah there was um, i 'm really interested in in how power works in literature, and I think that 's one of the most exciting things about writing character is the the shifting power dynamic mm. i mean that 's part of our relationship whenever we um, communicate with anyone else or anything else we 're we're looking, we're looking at shifting power dynamics and mm. The aim, I suppose, is to get it equal, but it's, it's not always like that, especially so in literature. So I really wanted to make sure that uh, Sue, the dingo, and the other animals um, were foregrounded, in the text, but I needed to start with the human having power, and I, being from Australia, um, the idea of sort of imperialism of, of colonisation um, is very very present, and of course there's a, a colonising of language, and in sort of translation and translation theory, that's that's talked about a lot. So um, the the way that we interpret uh, other languages. Uh, especially traditionally, if if it's uh, interpreted into English, we have our take on it um, and we we put this colonising layer over the top. So when the animals speak, it is always mediated through the human Mm. voice. It's a first-person voice of Jean. And so when Jean first hears what Sue is saying, she's thinking, oh... She's calling me queen. She's got this, this immediate, immediate uh, colonised attitude. You know, I'm, I'm the queen. And as she gets to understand Sue a little more and as Sue gains more agency in the text, she's not calling her queen. She's calling her bad dog um, or bitch or lickspittle. Um, and, this, and this sort of goes, goes down until eventually Sue settles on cat dog. You know, you can... <laughs> 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 um, you know, I'll, I'll leave you at that. Along with the with actually writing the animal dialogue, I would almost say that the power edit um, was its its own edit in itself. I didn't touch anything else. I spent you know perhaps you know a month or so just looking at how the power dynamics changed and how that changed the language between uh, Sue and Jean and at one point in one of the edits, um, Sue and Jean didn't actually talk to each other Sue would sort of say things and Jean would swear a lot and they would (laughs) Mm. Mm. exist and I really, actually bringing them together in the text and actually making a human and non-human have a real conversation with each other and have what I hoped was a real seeming relationship Mm. as much as you can get in literature was um, I mean it was an amazing challenge
0: It's very real, it's very real and and that's what makes the ending too so uh, yeah, like being dumped by a wave
1: yeah <laughs> I would love to hear from from sinking lessons, Philip.
0: Um, all right i'll 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 do a little I'll do a little one. um i'll I'll read the one that you referred to earlier, which was called Eel Dream. We live in a little gully um of which there are many in Littleton, um and there's a winterbourne that that comes down the middle of the gully, so it's you know it's dry in the dry weather and it runs. Uh, it's a little torrent in the wet weather. And it comes down into what they call a brick barrel culvert. Um, so there's a, there's a sort of a brick tunnel uh, that, that channels the water, and it channels it right under our bedroom <laughs> as it happens. Um, and just outside the bedroom, if you look down, the, the culvert is open, so you can see down into the water. So that's, that's where this happened. Eel dream. Last time out before sleep, the dogs dive into darkness, a torrent at full spate to them, but blank to me, except the torch's tunnel vision, glimpses, shaking leaves, a glinting chain of piss. I flick the beam into the brick-lined culvert where the gully freshet flows under our house. Spotlit in the cloudy water, one young eel floats still but for her sinuating fins. She's come up from the harbour. Her ancestors swam 40 latitudes to reach the navel of their dream. Their offspring made it back. Leaf larvae, glass eels, elvers, climbed sluices and conduits beneath the town, refusing to forget the place their parents knew. The dogs drop into bed. As I drift off, she slips downstream beneath my pillow. Thank you.
1: I'm so glad that you read that piece in particular. Eels are one of the creatures that have really struck me on, on arriving and, and living in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. I didn't realise what a huge presence they have and how mm-hmm. important um, they are to New Zealand culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in eel dreams particularly and, and all throughout singing lessons, I find that non-human animals are not merely present in the text or as companions to the narrator, and they're certainly not metaphors. Uh, and in many of the poems, and, and particularly ill Dreams, there's a sense of shifting perspectives and a query as to who is actually narrating this moment. Um, when I first read it, um, I wondered, is the eel dreaming of the human or is the human dreaming of the eel? It, it, there's this, and this shifting occurs all the way through this amazing collection. Um, do you see the narration of your poems in this way? Is, is, there, is there a shifting between the human and non-human narrator?
0: Well, I, I mean, I think one of the things that you can do with poetry um, and have it more forgivably... Um, than with then with a novel, you know, than with most novels, is that you can shift point of view, can't you? Or you can imply shifts in point of view and you can imply temporal shifts and you can imply grammatical shifts. Um, and, uh, and so when you're interested in writing about a non-human world that's full of its own ideas and has its own intentions and its own... Um, plans and its own experiences that 's um, i mean that 's poetry that just writes itself an eel is a poem that writes itself mm. you know ninety years they live um, and then they uh, and then they change so that they can cope with salt water and they swim off, God knows where mm. somewhere near Tonga, perhaps um, they swim under the water um, um, and then they spawn and then somehow the young float or swim their way back to the same spot, the same mm-hmm. river, and then they climb. I've climbed up those hills in Littleton and see eels up the top of the hills. Mm. Mm. Astonishing. They're, astonishing, They're things. astonishing. And, of course, they, they do have an amazing presence here in Aotearoa. Mm. And just a shout-out to Kirsty Dunn, um, who is currently writing amazing work about tuna um, and about uh, the presence that they have in Māori writing um, they're a very important sort of poetic animal uh, for tangata whenua too. They're very much part of this place. Mm. Um, and, and then, of course, there's the European eels. I mean, they, um, they go to the Sargasso Sea to reproduce, which is on the other side of the Atlantic. So, you know, I don't know what they're thinking.
1: Mm. Um,
0: <laughs> but, I, but, you know, and, and I don't know what I'm thinking all the time. And so... Um, yeah, if I can get an animal to imply some of the things that I don't know I'm thinking, mm. <laughs> that's a poem. The written word can do something that no other technology can do. Yeah,
1: I don't like to you know. think too hard about yeah. how, how text becomes a picture in your head. That, yeah. that does my.
0: Head. Yeah, that'll, that'll do your head <laughs> it's in. Magic. Um, but you can, so you can occupy somebody else's thoughts, the writer's thoughts. You're actually occupying these thoughts. Your mind is being. Is going along their thought patterns for, you know, um, 270 pages, for goodness' sake. Um, and so, writing and reading are extraordinary things that do enable us to to get out of ourselves or to get into the bits of ourselves that come from elsewhere. Um, yeah, and I think it, it's just uh, in, in the nature of the things that interest me that I that I read and that I think about that um, the, the non-human world. Um, gets me going. Mm. Yeah, yeah.
1: Are you going to read us another poem?
0: Um, This one's set in Littleton too. Because if you live in Littleton, I mean, you can't help writing poetry anyway, can you? It's called A Horizontal Light. Um, You're following the track across the eastern slope above the town, just like you do most days. The sun's about to drop below the northwest hills. It shines a horizontal light Upon the grass bank at your side and casts the life-size shadows of a man with an old dog. Next moment, from behind, the shadow of a younger dog comes racing through the others in a way, and that's the whole of it right there, or else as near as you can get to it and gone more swiftly than a man walks, dog runs, sun sets, shadows follow over grass. Mm, okay. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, I, um, could, I could just say we could just say, are there any questions? Um, and then if there are no questions, we're going to start asking you questions.
1: <laughs> it looks to that there are a few microphones. Running yes, there are around. microphones
0: flying uh, around. So I think if you somebody's already raised the hand oh, down wonderful. here, lovely.
1: We are animals, and I think humans forget that we are mammals and we are animals and that we're part of the animal kingdom. Hmm. And um, I'm finding it fascinating that he's that a poet and a novelist who are actually exploring that fact that we are animals and we've forgotten that. Do you think that's a sign of hope for the way we're interacting with the animal kingdom now? That he's that two brilliant writers who are taking this on board and showing us again that we are animals, talking or not? Thank you.
0: Laura is a sign of hope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well,
1: I'm, a, I'm a deeply, deeply cynical person but I I, I do like that idea that perhaps um, the increase that we're seeing in these sorts of works mm. is a reflection of what we're calling the environmental turn and the animal turn which is literally a turning towards away from ourselves for once um, and turning towards the rest of the world that we live in there you know as i said a few years ago it was it was amusing to write this sort of book and yeah. and now we're seeing such incredible works coming out um, philip mentioned Kirsty Dunn before i'm i'm really excited about about the work that um she's producing here of course here in in aotearoa we have um, an incredible legacy with the whale rider which is really i see oh, yes, as please. the foundational talking animal book it is it is the book to to look at, if you haven't read it in a while, um, go back to it. It is such a joy to revisit. Mm. Um, so we have these incredible authors that we can turn to, and have, who have bravely paved the way. And yet, they're and and they're allowing these other works to come out. We can be very brave in these topics now. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I think you're absolutely right, and I and I think that um, you know for a long time in in so-called Western cultures it has been a very dominant force that involves dominating nature outside and denying nature within, you know, dominating animals and denying our animality. And, the, and um, undoing both of those probably has to happen together. And, um, yeah, there are wonderful writers who are, who are tackling that head on.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, while the microphone's coming around, I, I wanted to say something that um, Witi Himaera said at, um, at the animal conference mm. last year. Um, uh, you said, Witi, that um, when you were thinking about how would the whales speak, you know, what would what would whales say? And you said, well, of course they would speak te reo Maori. Like, mm. of course whales would talk in, in that language. That was wonderful. Um, thank you so much for the wonderful talk. I was... Uh, struck by something you just said briefly about how the animals aren't metaphors, and um, I'm kind of interested as whether to whether you think that using an animal uh, for kind of metaphorical purposes to illustrate something about the humans that doesn't relate to its own self is a kind of almost like literary exploitation of animals. That's a big one, <laughs>
0: Laura Jean. Would you like to take? <laughs>
1: I do have opinions on this, actually. Um, So we come from this literary, Western literary history that... The, the novel and, and and creative writing is about the human experience and that the animal is a fantastic tool to use as a metaphor. Mm. Um, you know, if you if a dog, you know, is at the start of a novel, they're definitely going to die by the end mm. to mm. to reflect um, the young man's, you know, traumatic childhood and, and the way he, he grew up and lost his virginity and da-da-da. Um, it's, um, it, it's always a metaphor. But I don't think we need to discount that. Animals can be metaphors in literature, as can humans, as can... A chair and a cup and, and a shoe. Um, but we're we're realizing now that um, animal characters can also be foregrounded mm-hmm. and and have agency and meaning that is completely separate to the human experience. In the novel, and the novel is such an amazing form, um, and and short stories, and and poetry especially, actually, because of those shifting perspectives that you're allowed um, to be able to look at multiple narratives and multiple meanings, and celebrate that.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and and my just little addition to that would be that the thing about animals is that they're animate, um, they're on the go, and they're shifty, and so you can think you're using an animal as a metaphor. But animals and literature, and, and you know, I think when literature is really working well, it's, it's, it knows this and it's open to this and it has to sort of let go of control. And so animals escape the page and and mean their own things and do their own things in books that the writer might not have intended to.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually I'm getting into trouble in my teaching because people present these stories and and I'm like, oh, this this chimpanzee, you know, is so is such a fantastic character in the way way they, they rampage through the story and this and this and the rest of the class says, no, it's obviously a metaphor for drug use. And, <laughs> you know, there's fifteen people who all got that, and I'm no, yeah, but what about the chimp? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's wrecking my teaching.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, you you start, you know, once you start paying attention to animals and texts, like, you know, I'm. I certainly had this experience when I started uh, reading this stuff. You reread everything that you think you know, and this is all f- full of animals. It's infested with animals. There's animals everywhere. You know, Shakespeare, um, well, Herman Melville, we kind of knew there was an animal <laughs> there already. Um, but, uh, yeah. Yes. Um, and they're all up to something.
1: And then you can start to mine your own history as well in all of the mm. encounters and, and start to rethink Rethink your childhood and, and, and all those experiences that were maybe quite formative mm. and you didn't really perhaps realise how important that animal was to your um, life now. Yep. I'm interested in how you both came to have animals foregrounded in your work through your, I assume, through your own lives, how how you came to yeah, to have this um, interest in and, and writing about and you know, speaking about animals, how that, how that has eventuated through your life and how you've come to this point.
0: Thank you. Um, I, um, As I mentioned, I grew up um, near the sea and um, I was never allowed a dog. My mother wouldn't let us have a dog because she said the beach is no place for a dog. <laughs> My mother uh, had a logic all of her own. <laughs> and as soon as I left home, they got a dog. Um, and <laughs> so as soon as I left home, I got a dog. And that changed me and changed my life. But I also got a partner, (laughs) and um, she changed my life. Uh, She's uh, one of those remarkable people who realised at the age of 12 that she wasn't going to eat chickens anymore, Um, and uh, she was going to look after animals, and she was going to reorganise her life around animals. And so she uh, and I, as we grew closer together, that became much more a focus for us. And it so happened that... People in our business, uh, the business of you know teaching and researching and writing, started to pay attention to animals, and it stopped being just a sort of weird thing to think about, and became something quite serious. At about that time,
1: I um, my my family uh, are oddly ob- obsessed with animals. Um, we none of us can can well, especially my mum and and my grandma was the same. Um, we. Um, lived on a um, sort of a horse farm. You know, there were there were horses being raised, horses being broken, horses being trained outside the front window. I'd be eating breakfast, and, and a mare would be giving birth over here, and there'd be someone going around a track over here. So it was all just very animaly. But we we still we were still eating meat. There wasn't a. You know, there wasn't really much... There was a lot of cognitive dissonance. There wasn't much awareness of of this animal obsession. Um, But it was very much there. And oddly, very separately, um, my brother, and I never thought that would would happen, and my mum and I have all sort of gone towards sort of vegetarianism and and veganism on our own separate things. I guess you just get to a point, maybe when you're that obsessed with animals, where you do start to go, hang on a second. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And, uh, I mean, this um these novels sort of broke me in terms of of um of eating animals and things that just I was I was halfway through writing it and um I was I'd brainwashed myself I just um, yeah I, I couldn't do it anymore so I guess they've just been always very very much there but I don't actually have a companion uh, have own <laughs> um I, I don't yeah there's no um companion animal in my life I just um I move around too much <laughs> Sometime in the... There's a canine in my future, I think.
0: Oh, yeah, I would say so. Yeah. (laughs) A dingo. A
1: dingo, maybe. (laughs) I was just curious uh, if there are any other novels around dingoes that you've read or Mm -hmm. liked or would recommend. That's a great question. Um... Wild dog dreaming isn't a novel, um, but by uh, deborah Bird Rose um, is an incredible sort of i guess it's an academic study, but it's just a credible sort of meditation um, on on dingoes um, i'm I'm sure and of of course um, throughout australia um, dingoes dingoes arrived in Australia about uh, six thousand years ago and so they're they're a very contentious figure um, are they you know, compared to the, the longest living culture in the world um, of 60,000-plus of, of, uh, years, dingoes are quite a recent arrival, mm. but they have, they have been incorporated into the dreaming. So there would be incredible stories, Indigenous Australian stories um, around dingoes. In terms of novels, I've drawn a blank, actually, mm. and I feel like I'll go behind that door and go, <gasps> that one. Um, yeah, but if you come across any, please let me know. I presume that most of the audience here actually are animal lovers or interested in animals. What concerns me is the people who aren't and what we do to the
0: animals. I, I Thank you for your comment. Um, and um, uh, I will just say that one effect of reading Laura's, Laura Jean's book um, is that the way that the human beings, the human society responds to the fact that everybody can suddenly understand what animals are saying, including some people, insects, fish, whales, is that they uh, society shatters into a series of mostly appalling responses. Um, you know, people become paranoid. People um, uh, eviscerate animals to stop them talking. Um, some people do... Um, do-it-yourself brain surgery to try and stop hearing what they don't want to hear, Um, and then uh, some people uh, go off to try and join the whales (laughs) and end up drowning. Um, And so I think it's, but it's uh, very much grounded in the currently sort of chaotic and violent uh, and horrifying relationships that we already have with so many animals. Um, And so I think and, and I, I, I take that to be part of what the book is turning its attention to, and um, in, in a very brave way. Mm.
1: Yeah, I also thank you for your comment. Um, I mean, there's sometimes we do need to, to stand up and fight and, and say things um, about about the world. Um, if we don't agree with things, but I think there's also a lot to be said, especially in such a busy world, in you know sit down and write activism or sit down and read activism. The more works like this um, that that we can uh write and and read and become part of and tell other people about um I think this slow this slow message is really important. I mean if you believe that reading is important then then it has to be contributing to something, so just being here um, I think is. Is a, a form of activism in a way. It is, it is getting, getting that idea out there that um, the world is bigger than us, and that maybe we can do something to help that world.
0: Kia ora Koto katoa. thank you uh, so much, all of you for being here. Thank you, laura Jean Mackay, for your wonderful book, um, <laughs> and for, um, uh, and, and for giving us this book. So thank you all very much thank for being
1: here. Sure.